Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support the reporting behind it, consider a subscription to The Washington Post. With it, you'd get unlimited access to everything we publish. Not only would you be supporting Cape Up, you'd be supporting our reporters working around the world covering and uncovering the next big story. Now, here's something special. Podcast listeners can get one year of unlimited access to The Post for just $29. That's less than $1 a week. Learn more and subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Or click the link in the show notes. Please consider it. And thank you. I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Dr. Lonnie Bunch is the 14th secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, but he's the first African-American and first historian to lead it, thus making him the perfect person to talk to about this fraught moment in our nation's racial narrative. Slavery may formally have ended in 1865, but its impact continues to this very day, and that we're all shaped by it. Dr. Bunch and I talk about Juneteenth, the importance of the 1619 Project, what we could learn from Germany when it comes to grappling with the darkest chapters of the American story, why he applauds the Black Lives Matter movement and the outspokenness of the president and vice president of the United States. We talk about a lot, and you can hear it all right now. Secretary Lonnie Bunch, welcome back to the podcast. What a treat to be with you. Thank you for having me. So in getting ready for for this interview, which is probably our third or fourth, but this, you were my seventh, number seven interview on this podcast after it first launched five years ago this August. Our interview was in September of 2016, before the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, of which you are the founding director. But a lot has changed since then. You went from founding director of that museum to the 14th secretary of the Smithsonian Institutions. How about that? (laughs) I've got to learn to say no at some point in my life. So in in all in all seriousness, how has it been? What the transition been from a museum director to the leader of a national, if not global, institution? Well, I think first of all, you realize you've got to be true to yourself. So I'm a historian, so I bring that sort of vision to this. And candidly, because I had worked at Air and Space Museum, American History, and then being a museum director, I really had a good sense of how the Smithsonian works. So the transition was not as difficult as sort of saying, let me learn this new institution. But what it was is recognizing that my job is to make it easier for the museum directors, for the research centers to do the work they want to do and to try to create a way that there is a vision that says, here is how the Smithsonian serves the American public. You mentioned you are an historian. You're the first historian to be the leader of the Smithsonian. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that the Smithsonian has always been a place that's been driven first and foremost by science. 
Um, a lot of the early secretaries were scientists. I think that in a way, the notion was that the Smithsonian is a place that is really first a place of science, then a place of education. And I think that for me, what, what, what we've really tried to suggest is that the great part of the Smithsonian is that it touches history, science, art, and culture. And so as somebody who's a historian, I have a broader view of how those interact um, and how they all can serve the American public. You're also the first African-American to be the secretary of the Smithsonian. What does that say about the institution and what does that mean to you? You know, it says that it's been a long 175 years for the Smithsonian (laughs) before they really could sort of embrace a person of color as a leadership. But I think it says several things about the Smithsonian. It says that the Smithsonian recognizes that it has to be as much about today and tomorrow. And so that in essence, making sure that they provide the leadership regardless of one's color, but that to open the door to make sure that someone who has a perspective that I have, a perspective both about history, but also about race, um, really is something that I think helps to shape the Smithsonian. I'll tell you what it means to me. It's, it's been very interesting thinking about this. Um, on the one hand, you know, I spent most of my career integrating museums, right? Um, and so part of this is now saying all the things I believe in, the power of the past, the importance of inclusivity, the, the strength that comes from being more diverse, I get to implement that. Um, And so for me, it's really an opportunity to make concrete the things I try to do at the African-American Museum, the things I've tried to do my whole career. But it also is unbelievably humbling. Um, You know, I recognize symbolically what this means for so many people. Um, I get the emails of people saying, my God, we're so pleased that you're in this position, um, which is great. But I recognize that like many pioneers, we carry a double burden. The burden is you've got to be able to master your profession, be the best you can be, but also recognize you're carrying hopes and dreams and expectations of a particular community. And luckily, I'm used to that, but it doesn't mean the burden gets lighter. Mm-hmm. And part of that burden is also bearing the burden of that community's disappointments. How do you deal with that? I think that part of what you want to do for me is to use history to define reality and give hope. So that even though we talk about the moments where the African-American community was mistreated, where America didn't live up to its stated ideals, what's important to me is to say that this is not a linear march to progress, but it is a march. Um, And that in essence, if you look back at history, we have changed the country in profound ways. We have changed the opportunities in profound ways. The key is to recognize that that is an ongoing struggle, that we're never going to get to the promised land of complete equality. What we want to do is continue to challenge the nation to live up to its ideals, um, to be the place it says it is rather than it actually is. And, you know, talk about the ongoing struggle. We, in just the last month, have seen the incredible sweep of American history as lived by African Americans. On the one hand, we had the the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd um, under the knee of a white police officer in Minneapolis. And then within a few days we ha- of that anniversary, we had the marking of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. I mean, 
just you're the historian. I'm going to lean on your your historian chops. Talk about what that means that in that sweep of 100 in that sweep of 100 years, there's a lot of progress to to talk about. The fact that you're the the secretary of the Smithsonian or the fact that I'm a a you know, out gay black you know reporter at the Washington Post does speak to advancement and yet Tulsa and Minneapolis speak to how things haven't changed. Well, let's be honest. You and I are lucky, but we also know if we had turned right instead of left at some point in our careers, we might not be here, right? Um, that's that's right, the fragility right. of being a black male, right? This fragility of race. I think what this, what this sweep reminds us is both the resiliency of a people. When you look at Tulsa, it really... Um, puts to lie the notion that violence is not a way that America tried to control African-Americans. It's clear that violence, the notion of massacres, whether it's in Tulsa, whether it's the individual massacre of George Floyd, this is part of a long tradition of controlling a community. Um, What you get from Tulsa is, one, Americans want to erase that memory. And that's why it took so long for people to say, this is a story we need to know about. Because, uh, because as a nation, Americans are selective historically. Um, they want to view themselves as the good guys. Um, and so to sort of have to grapple with moments of evil, moments of pain, um, is very difficult. But I think that what the attention that Tulsa does is it forces America to confront as I've always said, it's tortured racial fresh. It's really important that these stories are really made concrete for people because I want people to understand that the challenges that the African-American community has experienced, the challenges to Americans' ideals. What I, come, what I also take from Tulsa 100 years later is the resiliency of a people who rebuild, who basically say, you're not going to chase us out. We're going to rebuild this community. And that's, and that's a very powerful thing. But it also tells you, by looking at the murder of George Floyd, I mean, this long history of Breonna Taylor, uh, Emmett Till, it tells you about the fragility of black life and the fragility of freedom. Um, And so the challenge for me is to help people understand that we've got to counter that fragility. We've got to try to give a bulwark to protect not just the African-American community, but to help America live up to what it says it is. So for me, it's a two-sided coin. Um, Bring history to help people understand this community and its role in America, but also bring history to help people say that if America is going to be the place we say we are in our founding documents, if we're going to be the place that Lincoln calls our more perfect union, um, if we're going to be that sort of great society of Lyndon Johnson, then we have to confront these notions and not just say, oh, isn't that a shame? but say, how do we affect positive and fundamental change? One of the ways to counter that fragility you were talking about, um, and a prime example of that, is the 1619 Project. And I remember being uh, on Martha's Vineyard when it dropped, and everybody was a buzz, a buzz about this, about this thing, this enormous undertaking. And I sat and read through as much of it as I could in, in a day, especially 
Nicole Hannah-Jones opening essay, which was just phenomenal. And yet here we are two years later, and there are states like Oklahoma that are banning it being taught in schools. People are calling it ideology and saying that it is wrong to even present this history. I, you're the historian. What, what's your view of the 1619 Project, but also the people who are, who are gunning for it, trying to undermine its legitimacy? You know, the 1619 Project isn't perfect. But what historical examination is perfect, right? I mean, that's joy of history, that it evolves over time. But what 1619 does is it says, in a fundamental way, you can't understand America without understanding race. You can't understand this nation without grappling with slavery and its continuing impact. That, to me, is unbelievably powerful and so important. It is also unbelievably frightening. Because what you see are people taking that to say, ah, what we're saying is that America is a horrible place, that it's only driven by racism, that racial violence is the only thing that has shaped this country. And what the 1619 Project is saying is that if you want to understand our notions of freedom, if you want to understand what America says it is, you've got to look at it through the lens of race to see where America hasn't lived up to its stated ideals. Uh, My concern is that there has always been a long history in America where people have tried to tamp down education, um, whether it was McCarthyism. um, And so my fear is that I want to make sure that we're a nation that embraces all the challenges of our past and really uses education for what it is, which is a mean to, to broaden our thinking, to challenge who we are, to help us become a better nation, rather than simply say, there are stories we can't tell. And for me, I've always felt that my job as a historian, my job as an educator, is not to point fingers and say you're guilty, but to help you understand how this history is all of our history. That by trying to deny it, you're also denying part of who you are, regardless of race. That reminds me of something you told me when you came to the podcast at the very beginning, back in 2016. You said, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, slavery is American history. It's something that Black Americans care about, but it's also something that white Americans should care about because it's their history, too. Exactly. I mean, when you look at slavery, on the one hand, slavery is a a predominant Black story. Right. It's a story of family separation, but a story of resiliency. It's a story of defining what freedom really means, not just for African-Americans, but for all Americans. But on the other hand, what slavery is, it's the engine of America. Right. It was the economic engine that led to the Industrial Revolution. Um, It really was the sort of fact that America was built on the backs of the enslaved. So what I want people to recognize is that slavery may formally have ended in 1865, but its impact continues to this very day and that we're all shaped by it. And so I think that even if somebody says, well, my family moved here 20 years ago, you're shaped by the legacy of slavery. Um, And so what I hope people will do is rather than say, oh, we can't talk about that. I think that isn't the key for education to find understanding? to find hope, um, to find a shared future. That's why I worry about people not discussing these issues, 
because we can't find that shared future unless we do. You know, one of the things that's coming up is Juneteenth. You know, talk about talk about slavery, but but Juneteenth, June nineteenth, help me out, uh, Professor. <laughs> 1865. Talk about Juneteenth and and the importance of that holiday. Well, you know, what I find fascinating is as a kid, I never heard of Juneteenth. Um, you know, even as a historian, Not me either. yeah, I've heard of it. Um, when I moved to California, all these people were talking about Juneteenth. I said, "What is this?" Um, but what I realized is several things. Is first of all, you know, as you know, Juneteenth is the moment that word of the Emancipation Proclamation reaches p- parts of the enslaved in Texas, and what that really has become from for Texans initially and then now nationally is a celebration of freedom, not a recognition of slavery but a celebration of freedom. And I think that for me, what has been so powerful is that Juneteenth is now something that millions more people know about. Um, And that it really is, in some ways, it's replacing what was really a very powerful moment in the African-American community. Um, After slavery, really into, maybe up to World War I, the most important day was really January 1st, right, when the Emancipation Proclamation was, was went into effect. And African-Americans around the nation would have marches on that day, right? They'd have the watch night and then they'd have the marches. But that faded away. So now what Juneteenth is, it's allowing us, one, as a community, to embrace freedom, to, un- to, to understand slavery. But more importantly, I would argue, it's an opportunity for America to rethink what freedom means, to rededicate itself to liberty and justice. Um, So I see it as a holiday that, yes, that's firmly steeped in the African-American tradition, but it's also steeped in American notions of freedom, possibility, and hope. So my my hope is that this becomes a holiday that many people embrace, not just African-Americans. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Our friend and my colleague, Michelle Norris, had a, an incredible opinion essay, the headline being, Germany Faced Its Horrible Past, Can We Do the Same? And um, there's this, this key li- a couple key lines in there that I would love to get your reaction to. She writes, the United States does not yet have the stomach to look over its shoulder and stare directly at the evil on which this country stands. We have not had that unflinching assessment, and we are long overdue. I mean, this gets to what we've been talking about from the very beginning of this conversation, but expand on on what Michelle's talking about, and also why 
it is actually not just important, but useful to look at what Germany has done in terms of reckoning with its even more recent past. Well, you know, uh, first of all, I love Michelle. Um, We talked about this article and she's so good with it because I think it really does illuminate the darkest corner of America to say that, in essence, there's a history here that is too important to ignore. Um, And that as Americans, um, I've always argued, for example, with the Civil War that, you know, the South lost the war, but they won the peace. Um, And in some ways, what Michelle is arguing is that we have never really looked like Germany did at the darkest moments of our history. And the difference is, of course, Germany loses a war and is both penalized for that. And then the German people recognize that they cannot be who they once were. And the only way they can be the different Germany is by embracing and understanding the Holocaust. We've never done that. We've never done that. We are now, because of scholarship, um, from John Hope Franklin to today, we now have more information, more people, um, we have more facts. But the reality is that as you're seeing over the fight over 1619, um, people are not, there are a significant number of people who are not willing to say, let us understand the true history of the country, not the myths, not what we hope to be, what we really are. And only by exploring that can we really become the nation we want to be. Reading Michelle's piece, I because she goes way into what Germany has done, um, the way they publicly recognize their history. And it reminded me of the one and only time I went to Berlin, which by now is almost 10 years ago, and just having an afternoon to walk around And not having done any, I like going to cities and not having done any prior research, but just sort of drop in and walk around. And it just blew my mind just how in your face, in Berlin, in Germany, they put their history, the the evil parts of their history in your faces from the little um, brass markers in front of in front of the old homes where German Jews were taken away and sent to concentration camps. That's one small gesture. But the largest gesture is right there in the middle of the city. The I'm going to get the museum name wrong, but it's I think it's the National Memori- Memorial to the Murdered Jews of Europe. I mean, it, just in your face, no sugarcoating, just no, this is what it is. And it is such a powerful monument. Do you ever think that the United States, we as Americans, would be as bold and courageous and honest as the Germ- about our history as the Germans have been? Well, you know, I think that, um, like you, I am always struck whenever I'm in Berlin or in any parts of Germany um, that these are stories that school kids learn from a very early age and that what Germany has said is that we can't become the Germany we want to be, the Germany that's fair, if we don't embrace that awful part of our history and, again, learn from it so that it never again happens. I think that the United States missed that opportunity after the Civil War. I think it's missed the opportunity after the Civil Rights Movement. I think that it's crucially important that will we get to where Germany is? I doubt it. Um, I think we will get closer 
with the because there's going to be more scholarship, more debates. We'll get closer. And what I'm what I'm proudest of, I think, of Black Lives Matter and the protest around um, George Floyd has been a greater appreciation for that history. Um, and the challenge is how do you build on those moments? So to make sure that history is well known and known from elementary school till adulthood. But clearly what this is really about is Germany decided that they fought a cultural war and decided that they had to tell these stories to be the better Germany. We are still in the midst of fighting that cultural war to make sure that issues of race and issues of gender, issues of sexuality are really part of our history. And until we do that, we will be people who only understand just a small part of who we are as a nation. Secretary Bunch, how important is it to have a president of the United States who seems to be, and a vice president, to be quite honest, who both seem to be unafraid to talk about the dark corners of our history, just as the, the, the president did in Tulsa to mark the, uh, the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, just as the vice president did um, in her remarks after the Derek Chauvin guilty verdict. Two leaders of this country, the top leaders of this country, unafraid to go there. Leadership matters. And that I think what's important is that even though when I was a kid, we thought the president and the vice president sort of, you know, walked on water and those days are gone. But what we still do is we look to their leadership. They give us the opportunity to sort of think about things in a different way. They legitimize some issues. And the fact that they are both talking so clearly, so candidly around issues of race is all for the good. Um, because that'll mean that there'll be other people who will ask questions about race or who embrace this history. And it also means that it will stimulate the kind of debates and candidly cultural wars that have to happen if the country is going to really embrace its tortured racial history. So I am, um, I applaud what they do. I'm in awe of what they do because for me, there is nothing more valuable than knowledge than knowing your accurate history. And I think that what they're doing is suggesting how important it is for Americans to embrace all of their history, to understand how we're all shaped by that. And so I think that that's all for the good. It does mean that it's going to stimulate, obviously, the kind of backlash that you see with 1619, et cetera. You mentioned earlier the Black Lives Matter protests, and one of the things that was sort of startling to a lot of us was that it wasn't just us, meaning black people, in the streets protesting. There were lots of white Americans who took to the streets with just as much um, determination and, and anger, and support for all sorts of things were through the roof. But as time went along, that support slowly waned. How... Is it possible to maintain that level of interest, of support, when there are so many forces out there just pushing hard to pull people the other way? Well, I think that we can look back at history and see that there are the ebb and flow, that there are moments like, let's say, the 1960s, when you suddenly saw this sort of desire among many Americans to be more transformative around issues of race. 
But what happens then is you have Richard Nixon coming out for law and order. Um, law and order is a code word, is, you know, control these out of, out of control black people. Um, and so what you see is people moving away. I think there are a couple things that hit me about what you just said. One is that I still think there are larger numbers of people who aren't of color who are still engaged with this. I mean, I'm struck by what I still see in the streets of Paris or in Berlin um, around the world of people saying this is still an important issue. I'm also struck that there's a younger cohort of non-African Americans who see this as not an ancillary story, but as a story of who they are. And that's for the good. I think the challenge is that part of how you build long-term support is to have concrete milestones. One of the challenges of this is to really say, what are the goals, not the goals, but what are the concrete products of Black Lives Matter? Um, what are the things that, what is the agenda of change? So I think that part of it is you have people who are still very supportive, but not sure what the next steps are, not sure how to build on anger, um, build on the excitement of protest. So I think that's one of the challenges is to sort of define an agenda. Um, we talk about defunding police, but what's the agenda, the overall agenda that's going to lead to change? I think that will allow people to stay supportive. But I do think that we have to recognize that historically it's always ebb and flow um, and that there's going to be great excitement and then that excitement begins to get tamped down. I hope that with the conversations the president um, and the vice president are having, um, even the debates around 1619 will keep these issues at the forefront and will continue to get people to be engaged so that they see this, for me, as their story, not somebody else's story. Yeah, you say ebb and flow, um, and that reminds me of something that I always have to keep, uh, remind myself, and that is history is not linear. You know, not at all. And when, you know, it's funny, when I, when we created the African American Museum, if you remember when you go in, you got to walk up ramps. The goal was the ramps would go forward and back, forward and back to say history is not linear, um, that there are going to be moments of great boost forward and then there's going to be a backlash or there's going to be steps back. And so I think for me, that notion of the fact that it's not a linear march to progress, but that what it is, is it is a long-term struggle that is going to have moments of victory, moments of resiliency, and moments of defeat and pain. Um, that's the way change occurs in this country. What makes you proudest of the African-American story? I always have a picture in my office that I've had for 20 years, and it's a woman who is just free, formerly enslaved woman, who's very short. She's carrying a hoe that is taller than she is. She's got a heavy basket. Um, her dress is tattered. Her knuckles are swollen from work, but her head is up and she's stepping forward. To me, that's what I'm proudest of, that here is a community that believed in an America that didn't believe in them. Here's a community that said, we are going to help a country define what citizenship is, what freedom is, what equality is, not just for black people, but for all people. So in a way, I'm proudest of that strength of this community and their commitment to sort of being the beacon of possibility, 
when it comes to helping America live up to its stated ideals. So I take that picture and I say to myself, every day when I'm tired, I'm ready, I'm disgusted with budgets or whatever, I look at that woman and say, her head is up, she took a step forward, I can't quit now. And final question, what makes you proudest of the American story? I'm proudest that there are always people who cross boundaries, who cross racial and gender lines to fight for fairness. I'm struck by abolitionists who, you know, now we celebrate what they were considered pariah in the 19th century. I celebrate the civil rights movement who now is seen as everybody was supportive of when we know most people weren't. So what I'm proudest of is that people in America have crossed racial and ethnic lines to fight the good fight. That's what makes me proud. Secretary Lonnie Bunch, the 14th Secretary of the Smithsonian Institutions, thank you very, very much for coming back to the podcast. It's my pleasure. And I love the fact that I was number seven because as a kid, I loved Mickey Mantle, right? Who wore number seven. So... Before I go, let me introduce you to a new podcast from Washington Post Opinions. It's called Please Go On, hosted by Post columnist James Homan. Every Friday, James interviews someone who's written an insightful or important op-ed for The Post. His first guest? Vice President Kamala Harris. You might remember James if you listened to his previous show, The Daily 202's Big Idea. A nice compliment to what we're doing here on Cape Up. Please Go On creates a space for guest authors to go deeper on what they've written. I know you'll like it. Check it out. You can find Please Go On with James Homan wherever you get your podcasts.